Good morning. It's great to be together this Lord's Day. We're reading from Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, the first 11 verses. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowd that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowd answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. Today's Palm Sunday. Excuse me. The day Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And it's right that we celebrate that. And I want to preach on that this morning. Up until now, Jesus had avoided publicity. Because the last thing he needed before his hour had come, as he put it, was for some political movement trying to make him king. So he avoided publicity. But today, Palm Sunday, was different. This was a day when he was about to reveal just who he was and who he is. He would allow people to recognize him and his messiahship for the first time. Before that, even people that he had healed, he would say, tell no one. But now his time had come, and he was declaring who he was, wanted them to recognize that about him. Today, recognition, identity, is very important. We now have little photos on our driving licenses so people can know it's really us. Some mobile phones even have, I'm told, face recognition when you want to go into your phone. Let me tell you a little story. Jane and I were in Iceland shopping a few weeks ago. And did you know that if you're an old age pensioner, um, you can get 10% off your bill on a Tuesday. True. Well, this was a Tuesday, and there we were shopping 
in Iceland. And we'd read that when you go to pay and ask for the 10% off, that they will want some sort of proof of identity so that they know you are an OAP. Well, we got to the till. The operator scanned all the things down, looking at a screen all the time that she was doing it. And as she got to the end, my wife, Jeannie, said to the till operator, can I ask what form of ID that you want? The woman stopped what she was doing, looked up at Jean and said, my dear, no need for identification, that's fine. <laughs> so facial recognition for us has a whole new meaning. But it's very important that we recognize who Jesus is. Very important. And I want to say more about that shortly. But let's get back to Palm Sunday. Chuck Warner, writing about Palm Sunday, tells that there were actually two processions into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday in AD 30. Now that's the year thought to be the year that Christ was crucified. You need to remember that there's good evidence now that Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, was probably at least three years earlier than originally thought. So Jesus would have been about 33 years old. Anyway, Warner says that there were two um, uh, processions into Jerusalem. Pilate, with his procession from the opposite side that Jesus entered with his. Pilate entered with Roman soldiers on horseback and also foot soldiers fully armed in a big display of power. You see, the Passover that they, the Jews were about to celebrate was a celebration of God's great deliverance of the Jews from Egypt all those years before. And what better time for the Jewish zealots to bring about an insurrection than on the commemoration of that day. So Pilate entered Jerusalem from the opposite side with a great show of force to deter any unrest. What a contrast to the procession of Jesus. Jesus, the King of the Jews, was entering the holy city in fulfillment of prophecy to bring about the greatest deliverance this world has ever seen. Not a deliverance just to the Jews, but to all mankind. Now, I want to say some simple things. Normally, I like to have sort of one, two, three points. I've just got a few thoughts I want to share this morning. I've got a, gone away from my usual alliteration. I want to say this, first of all. The day began with Jesus issuing instructions to his disciples. We read together, as they approached Jerusalem, they came to Vestphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village ahead of you. At once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord has need and needs them and he will send them right away. Note that Jesus gave his disciples a specific command. 
that they had to fulfill. They needed to obey the command of Jesus. They might have thought, well, surely this is a low priority on our order of the day. Why do we need to bother about going to a village and getting a donkey? They might not have seen the relevance of it to what was about to be fulfilled. But it was a key part of the plan that Jesus had for the day. And from their simple obedience would flow the fulfillment of prophecy, the opening of people's eyes to who Jesus is, and the opening of lips to praise him. Who says obeying the commands of Jesus isn't important? The word of God is the truth by which we as Christians are to live. The Bible statutes and commands set the standard for our behavior. The words of Jesus must govern our lives. When we obey God's word we, and live by it, we enable the outflow of God's purpose and blessing through our lives to all around. In Acts 28, it tells how Paul, on his way to Rome uh, as a prisoner on the, on the ship, was shipwrecked, and they all ended up being uh, cast on to the isle, island of Malta. Uh, in verse 7, it says this, there was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed a great hospi a generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him, and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. Wherever he went, even in a shipwreck, he carried the presence of Jesus and was fruitful in bringing the power and blessing of God to people. Even when he got to Rome and was locked up in a prison cell, he says this in to, uh, his letter to the Philippians, chapter 1, verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Wherever he went, he was fruitful for God because he lived by the word of God. I've always been greatly challenged by John chapter 15, where Jesus talks about him being the true vine and we are the branches. In verse 5 he says, for without me you can do nothing. It seems to me sometimes Christians we're better at doing nothing than doing something worthwhile for God. In verse 5, if I quote the whole verse of chapter 15 of John, 
I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. The word fruit or fruitful in John 15 appears nine times. Being fruitful as Christians is clearly meant to be the norm in our lives. On Palm Sunday, the disciples listened to the word of God and obeyed it to the letter. And from it, that obedience blessing flowed. We must let the word of God dwell in us. Colossians 3:16 says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. I love the way the, the paraphrase, the message renders this. It says, Let the word of Christ, the message, have the run of the house. Give it plenty of room in your life. If we want to be fruitful for God. We've got to be people centered on the word of God, with the word of God dwelling us, obeying it, fulfilling the commands of Christ. Another thought that I want to bring is, please note the crowd's response to Jesus riding into Jerusalem. It says, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees. Elsewhere, I think in the authorized version, it says palm branches and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. The practice of using palm branches in this way to welcome a deliverer goes back to the victory of Judas Maccabees in about 164 BC when he won a great victory over the Seleucid kingdom. The book of Maccabees, which incidentally is not, as you know, a, a Bible book. It's a good Jewish record of what happened in those days, though. Um, it records this. The Jews entered the citadel, that's Jerusalem, with shouts of jubilation, waving of palm branches, the music of harps and cymbals and lyres, and singing of hymns and canticles, because a great enemy of Israel had been destroyed. Now the Jews would have been, of Jesus' day would have been well aware of their recent history, as indeed they were of their biblical history. And the use of palm branches clearly shows they had this great victory by Judas Maccabees and his brothers in their mind by the way they responded to Jesus' coming. They also would have been aware of Zechariah 9.9, which is quoted in that passage I read to you from uh, Matthew 21. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. I want to suggest what was uppermost in their mind in that Zechariah 9 prophecy was the word victorious. They saw the Messiah as a great deliverer like Judas Maccabees coming to deliver them from Roman occupation uh, and uh, from Roman laws. 
Now, having put what the crowd were doing into context, I want you to look at the word Hosanna. Hosanna in the original Hebrew means save now. Now, over the years, it took a few journeys through Greek and then Latin and arrived in English something about the 12th century, although we can't be sure of that. And by the time it reached English, they changed the, the interpretation of what it means so that they now interpret it, as our songs do, as praise. But originally in the Hebrew, it was a phrase that meant save now. And that would have been the understanding that the crowd in Jesus' day had of the word Hosanna. So when they cried Hosanna to the son of David, they were crying, Jesus, Messiah, save us now. And as I've said, I believe that in their mind, they were thinking of save us now from the Roman occupation, from their taxes, from their laws. Now, before we're too hard on the crowd for missing the big picture of what was actually happening that day, perhaps we ought to have a closer look at ourselves. Robert Murray McShane, the great Scottish preacher, once said, if you want to humble a man, ask him about his prayer life. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you about your prayer life. Commenting on that, Derek Thomas said, Our prayers reveal much about us. Prayers with little or no worship and focusing on our needs reveal a distorted Adamic bent. What they reveal is self-centeredness. He goes on to say, When Jesus taught us to pray, in, he showed us that prayer begins and continues with God. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, Matthew 6, 9, takes a look at the structure. Uh, take a look, he says, at the structure of the Lord's Prayer, and it will show you that at least half of our praying should be addressed to the praise and worship of God. I grew up living in the same, same street as my uh, grandparents. I don't know whether they passed my allergies on to me, but excuse me. I have a nose that runs all the time and I've never caught it. Um, I, I lived in the same street as them. My, my grandmother died when I was 14 years old, but my grandfather lived till he was 87. During my grandfather's last years, he was almost immobile with um, arthritis. So we always left the back door open so any callers could just come in as he found it very difficult to get up to answer the door. Whenever I could, I would go in and sit with him a while and we would chat and he would talk about the things of God. He would talk about his amazing healing ministry as a lay preacher that he had and the miracles he'd seen God do by his humbling, humbly and simply praying for people to be healed. He often talked about the cross and being Jesus focused in our lives. And you know, I always left a visit with him feeling renewed and refreshed within. That's how it should be when we've had time praying 
with Jesus. We should leave the presence of the Lord feeling renewed and refreshed. Our pastor Dave preached the last few weeks some really challenging sermons on the presence of God. A few weeks ago we sang after one of his sermons to be in your presence, to sit at your feet where your love surrounds me and makes me complete. This is my desire. Oh Lord, this is my desire, to rest in your presence, not rushing away, to cherish each moment. Here I would stay. May that be true of all our lives. We need when we come before God to just come into his presence and worship him before we get on to bringing our prayer request to him. But of course, I want you to hear what I'm saying this morning. That doesn't mean we can't bring our prayer needs and, and prayer requests to him. Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. I believe in intercessory prayer. Paul was always asking people to pray for him. Our Heavenly Father loves us and cares for us and wants us to share our cares with him. That's why Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety upon him for he cares for you. But a time with God needs to be Christ-centered, not self-centered. We need to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. The, the crowd were missing the big picture. They were just thinking of what they needed out of the Messiah. Deliverance from the Roman occupation. Hosanna, save now. They called out the right words to the right person, but for the wrong reason. They missed out on so much because Jesus is the Savior and we all need saving. The purpose of Christ's coming into the world was spelled out at his birth by none other than the angel of the Lord. Matthew 1.21 She will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The Romans 3.23 says For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he goes on to say in chapter 6 Verse 23, that the consequences of us all being sinners, the predicament of fallen short of the glory of God, is that we will be separated with God unless we repent. He says, for the wages of sin is death. And death in the New Testament not only means physical death, but separation. That's what the word actually means. But the good news is, Jesus is the Savior. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus saves us from our sins. As I've said, we all have sinned and stand guilty before a holy God of breaking his laws of all kinds of sin. Romans 1 verse 18 right through to chapter 3 verse 20 is all about the fact that we stand guilty before a holy God under condemnation. 
But then in chapter 5, verse 1, he uses three wonderful words that declare the good news of the gospel. He tells us that we are justified by faith in Christ. And through our faith in Christ, we stand in the grace of God. Three important words there. Justified was a legal term the Romans used where if you were taken to court, you seemed to be condemned. And the judge said, no, not guilty. You can go free. That was a legal term. Justified. We are justified through faith in Christ before God. The word grace is inserted there just to remind us we can't earn it or deserve it by anything we do. That's why Jesus died on the cross. He took our our sin and our judgment so that we could be forgiven. But we need to put our faith in him. I heard recently of a young man who um, really wanted to be a Christian, but he decided that he had a lot of questions hard questions about Christianity and he decided to set out searching, talking to this vicar and that vicar and reading this book and that book and when he said his questions were answered to his satisfaction then he'd become a Christian. The Bible says that's the wrong way to come. There are good answers to difficult questions. I'm glad of that. But the Bible says we must come through faith in Christ. At one point, Jesus took a little child, the Bible says in Mark 10:15, and placed him among the disciples and said, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. We have to come simply, humbly in faith in Christ. Jesus doesn't ask us to earn or deserve forgiveness or be hyper-religious or know a lot of theology before he'll receive us. He simply asks us to put our trust and faith in him. Charlotte Elliott wrote that lovely hymn, Just As I Am. She wrote, Just As I Am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, And that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, just as I am. Though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come. We have to come humbly, putting our faith in Jesus Christ. The only way. But sadly, there are many who won't come. Luke's account of Palm Sunday tells us that as Jesus approached the city of Jerusalem on that day, you can read it in Luke 19, 41 to 44, he wept over Jerusalem. Not going to be much longer. Just bear with me. It says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, The days will come upon you when your enemies will build up an embankment against you and circle you and hem you in on every side and so on. The word here for wept is a word which needs a little closer look. We find Jesus weeping in John's Gospel, chapter 11, at the tomb of Lazarus. 
the brother of Mary and Martha. He had died four days earlier. And when Jesus was standing there and saw Mary and Martha and the other mornings, mourners weeping, it simply says, Jesus wept. John 11:35. It's the shortest verse in the English Bible, not in the Greek Bible, but in the English Bible. Here again in Luke 19, as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, it says, Jesus wept. One commentator says, what is not so clear from our English translations is that two different words for weeping are used. In John's Gospel, the word refers to shedding tears. In the Greek, it is the word dekruo, to shed tears silently, tears that well up in your eyes and silently course down your cheeks. Silent weeping, that's what we have in John's Gospel, he says. But then he says, here in Luke 19, it's a different word. It's the word kleo which means audible weeping. The weeping which so suddenly seasons you, that you lose your control and you cry out loud. It seems to have been a sudden violent passion that gripped our Lord. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 10 says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him. The world did not receive him or recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Their rejection of Christ was breaking the heart of Jesus. At the end of the Passion Week, they would cry out, crucify him. We will not have this man to reign over us. Stuart Tannen uh, wrote a song entitled, How Deep the Father's Love, and he he pictures the cross and, and we all with the crowd standing at the foot of it. And the words say, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. We may feel that we would never have cried out with a crowd, crucify him. But we, so many, reject Jesus nevertheless, both actively and passively. People reject him because of unbelief, through indifference, through self-centered interest, and many other ways. But the result is the same, rejection. Rejection of him, of his atoning sacrifice, of his offer of forgiveness, of his gift of eternal life. The rich young ruler asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Could we turn that around and ask, what must I do to be separated from God forever, to go to a place the Bible calls hell? Did you know the answer to that is nothing? Because the Bible says we are all under the condemnation of God, the wrath of God because of our sin. As the old hymn says, though, Jesus came to give us life eternal and forgiveness. He took my sin and my sorrows, the hymn says, and made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. 
the gospel is good news. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. The message is simple, although it's profound. Believe in Jesus Christ, accept him, follow him. For salvation is found in Christ alone. Let's pray. Can I talk to those, first of all, who do know the Lord as a saviour? I want to challenge you this morning to make obedience to God's word number one in your life. To make God's word central to your life. I want to challenge you to spend more time with God. Not just presenting our list of requests, but worshipping him. Telling him we love him. Hearing from him. Reading his word. I want to talk to, to anyone here, and I, I don't know, that we may all, all be Christians here, but maybe someone here, and you've not come to the place in your journey of faith yet where you've put your faith in Christ, where you've invited him into your life, where you've said, okay, from this moment, Jesus, I'm going to trust and believe in you and follow you. I want to give you opportunity this morning, if that's you, to do so. You can pray right now and invite Jesus into your heart and life. Pray quietly in your heart, because the Bible says he knows the thoughts of a heart. But I'm going to say it out loud, a little prayer you can pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Forgive me my sin. Come into my heart and into my life. For from this day, I will follow you and commit my life to you. Grant to me the gift of eternal life and be my Lord and Saviour. Now, if you said that prayer, could we all just bow in prayer, please? And I just want to ask you, the Bible says we need to believe in our hearts and confess. And I want you to do that in a simple way. I'm not going to embarrass you or point you out. But if you said that prayer this morning, would you just raise your hand and take it straight down again? So that, thank you, so that I can, just lovely, thank you, so that, you know, I can pray for you when I go home today. Anyone else? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the saviour. And we cry, Hosanna, save now. But Lord, we also cry, Hosanna, praise our Lord and saviour. Father, we pray you will just bless your word to our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.